good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for joining. Uh, lovely to see you all here. I'm my name's Mark Miller. Uh, I'm director of uh, global strategy here at ODI. Uh, we were expecting Ratin to be opening us today uh, for us today. He can't be here in person. Uh, I'm sure he will explain to us why, but I'm going to pass over to him uh, to open up uh, the conference for us before the first session. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, yes, good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to ODI for our 2023 Public Finance Conference, which resumes exactly three years after uh, we last had it, which was just before the lockdowns in uh, March 2020. If you've lost my image, uh, then... Uh, yeah, so I'm back. Uh, I was going to be there in person. I was looking forward, in fact, to coming in yesterday evening, joining the World Bank side session. Unfortunately, over the weekend, I was um, I had to go to hospital to deal with a long COVID heart-related ailment. But luckily, all is well. And so I was back home yesterday, but I couldn't possibly uh, travel into Sadak this morning. So I'll do these uh, remarks online. But uh, honestly, welcome. Uh, the conference is as important for the content as it is for the fraternity of public finance professionals from across the world, develop, developing, rich, poor, emerging, uh, crisis-ridden, uh, who are able to meet and discuss what is increasingly becoming a common challenge or rather an overlapping challenge uh, that motivates the theme of the conference this year, which is this word which was popularized by our keynote speaker this evening, Adam Tooze, which is polycrisis. Now, finance ministries, at the best of times, have to deal with multiple competing trade-offs. They have to make sure that there's enough money coming in from taxation that ideally as much of current expenditure as possible is covered. They have to make sure that expenditure is uh, undertaken for the purposes sanctioned, and hopefully uh, some of the more aspirational ones are able to report that that expenditure has had the results intended by Parliament or by the executive authorities. They have to make sure there's money for capital investment through borrowing externally and internally, but they have to keep an eye at the same time on the macroeconomic situation, on inflation, and on the current account, and therefore you know, uh, many of these things are only partially under the control of finance ministries, and therefore they have to deal with these things as they happen, including exogenous shocks, which the U.S. has been gracious enough to visit upon us in the form of tapering and the unraveling of tapering from time to time since 2008. But that's business as usual almost for a finance ministry, and that's difficult enough. What we are gathered here to discuss today is possibly a moment that is unprecedented. Uh, certainly in this century and possibly for a large part of the last century, which is multiple interlinked events of an exogenous nature impacting the ability of finance ministries to run sustainable, effective treasuries in a multiple form of ways. The two headlines that inform this moment 
are, of course, COVID and the Ukraine war. COVID is interesting because what it involved was an immediate demand to ramp up public spending. And this demand occurred all across the world. But that ramping up of public spending could not possibly come with greater recourse to taxation. And if that was so, then the normal limits one sets to borrowing, whether domestically or overseas, would need to be suspended. Now, those countries like India, uh, China, who were fortunate enough to be able to conduct their domestic borrowing, they're borrowing largely within their domestic space, basically, therefore, had to throw the inflation target out of the window and try and make sure, which they did to varying degrees of success, that the money that was borrowed incrementally was spent on the purposes intended. Adam Tooze, who you'll hear this evening, has a phrase which I'm very fond of, and he actually quotes Keynes, which is, if you can do it, you can afford it. So I think with the poly crisis, there was, with the, with the COVID crisis, there was also this challenge. We didn't know what exactly we had to spend on, right at the higher levels of government. So there were two kinds of spending happening. There was reactive spending happening, and there was uh, proactive spending happening in some countries which decided that, took a view, that essentially what the COVID crisis was, was a crisis of demand, and that demand had to be shored up. And so you've got things that finance ministries had to deal with, which are rather unusual. In this country, for instance, subsidizing people's restaurant bills. Uh, in other countries, like, uh, you know, in many countries in Asia, a much more generous attitude to government subsidized credit than was previously there. But in all this, the standard frameworks that we had for debt sustainability obviously went out of the window. The Ukraine conflict, I'm choosing my words very neutrally, uh, the conflict in Ukraine, to quote the latest uh, G20 statement, I think that's safe enough, uh, compounded matters for countries that were importers of agricultural produce by causing inflation due to a rise in prices and also for everybody else by disrupting supply chains. And I suppose for Europe, in some measure, by increasing the share of spending on security and military expenditure relative to other things, or at least its priority in the, in the larger scheme of spending. These were short-term challenges that, were, that had to be dealt with, that the inevitable consequence of these in many places happened to be inflation. Some countries made trade-offs, which are being criticized to this day. This country became, the UK became one of the largest subsidizers of fossil fuel energy because fossil energy prices had gone up, fossil fuel energy prices had gone up. And rather than let people take the hit in the spirit of great environmental progress, uh, many countries ramped up subsidies, some countries opened their coal plants. So all sorts of things happened. But from a finance ministry perspective, all these things meant really three or four important things. One, those less able to deal with the body crisis, and I will exclude some countries which I think willfully got into a bad situation, notably Sri Lanka, 
But most other countries, especially many in Africa, were basically price takers, both on the revenue side and the expenditure side. They were price takers on the revenue side because as a result of the uh, COVID crisis, demand for their exports crashed. There was nothing much they could do with it. There were needs to buy because the world failed to provide these things free in the measures required to buy vaccines, to buy income support, to buy sort of welfare support for citizens in countries already in very straitened fiscal circumstances. These were countries that were forced largely to borrow abroad. And that then has resulted, I think, in a multiple debt crisis. And finance ministries, therefore, whether it's the Department of Revenue or the Department of Expenditure or the Department or the Macroeconomics Department, have had to deal with all these things happening simultaneously and exogenously across the globe. It is in this context that ODI decided this year to make a break from traditionally what we do, which is to speak of exclusively how finance ministries navigate imminent finance ministry problems. For instance, uh, our uh, very, uh, uh, our conference, uh, uh, our very first conference in November 2007, uh, which was held under the aegis of something called the Center for Aid and Public Expenditure, which name has thankfully been buried now, asked about how in, a, in, in, in difficult environments, in fiscally straightened environments, public financial management reforms could be implemented. Uh, the results showed that uh, we had to look at our definition of PFM reform success rather differently from the cookie cutter approach that was there in play. And that had a lot of influence in the way people looked at PFM reforms. In 2013, uh, we started looking at how budgets can link to better development outcomes. In 2014, that morphed into looking at how public finance, what the role of public finance was in achieving the sustainable development goals. Uh, in 2015, we looked at the question of infrastructure investment and how public finance could best be harnessed to uh, deliver on infrastructure investment. We also brought in the private sector there, obviously. And then in uh, 2018, we actually looked at something we are facing the consequences of now, rising debt in Africa and how finance ministries in Africa would be able to cope with it and what other countries in the international community could do to reduce vulnerability to debt disasters. And finally, in 2020, we looked at the role of public financial management for better public services. But this year, we are looking at a polycrisis that affects the globe, countries rich and poor. And we are trying to make sure that public finance ministries which have to work individually and in isolation are able to gather here as they have today to be able to understand better how we are in each country, in each context, navigating this body crisis in terms of its impact on the revenue function, the expenditure function, the debt management function, and the um, uh, resource mobilization, the, 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 the borrowing function. Plus, of course, for many countries, the impact on, of this on the current account and on foreign exchange. Uh, reserves and foreign exchange uh, viability. Uh, we have a most bizarre set of things happening across the world here. As I speak in Argentina, 
the leading presidential candidate proposes to dollarize the economy. Um, we have India actually celebrating not spending too much money during COVID and therefore saying that its public finances are in healthier shape than they otherwise would be uh, due to um, this uh, prudence. But at the same time, uh, fiscal deficits in India uh, are now in, still in the order of magnitude of 6 to 7% of GDP, which is almost three times what the last Fiscal Responsibility Act, which I authored, wrote. Uh, we have countries in Europe uh, arguing uh, rather um, bizarrely, not bizarrely for me, but bizarrely for them, since they were most pronouncedly uh, non-Keynesian in nature, that it is only greater public spending that would actually ensure the sustainability of the public finances. In all this, there are two things that remain constant, which we hope this conference will break. One is a link between the political economy of these polycrises and how that political economy influences finance ministries in their ability to uh, deal with multiple crises. Normally, issues of political economy only come up at extreme moments. I think this is one, such as Warren. <clears throat> the phrase, if you can do it, you can afford it, from Keynes was in large part motivated by the fact that uh, if you won a war, you normally were able to afford that war, a war, not colonialism. Uh, similarly, with this polycrisis, I think there is a conversation that is important, which is how better political coordination on the G20 or the G7 or wherever can actually help the globe cooperate better to address the consequences of the polycrisis, whether we need new kinds of instrumentation that can be cooperatively formed to be able to enable finance ministries to deal with the polycrisis better. A large part of this conversation has been in fact happening on multilateral reform. Uh, another important part of this conversation has been happening on innovative instruments, which I've been part of, such as trying to move away from lending in dollars to lending more in local currency. Uh, on the taxation front, I think there's been a conversation about the limits to taxation and a clearer understanding that, you know, mindlessly arguing for higher taxation in relatively poorer countries without understanding the political context, which would enable this to happen without a loss in welfare, would be both facile and unnecessary. And there is greater need for international cooperation. I can see this. I saw this at the last G20 summit as well, that ministries of finance and to some extent central banks who cooperate much better actually want to cooperate better. But the trouble is in the how. The tendency continues to be, and I'm referring to something Blanchard said about three weeks ago, uh, to a comment in response to a comment a European economist made that countries don't really care about the objects or purposes for which debt is incurred. What they care about is the circumstances under which debt is repaid. Now, this is basically nonsense from a development perspective or from an economics perspective, but it makes sense from an accountancy perspective. I don't care what a dollar of debt is used for as long as I get paid my principal and my interest on time. But surely, if you're working in the world of public policy, what debt is used for does matter and should be taken into account in debt sustainability analyses. So when I engaged in this debate, including with Gosha, then said, you know, uh, why can't we do this? I myself have worked on how one can do it. It does involve creating a taxonomy of purposes of 
<clears throat> for which debt is used, something that is less crude than just capital and current expenditure. The answer was a deafening silence. So I'm afraid, and I'd be keen to hear, especially from the World Bank and the IMF, uh, whether there is some progress being made to answering the question I asked 19 years ago, which is fiscal space for what? Does this inform the way you analyze a country's debt solvency and sustainability? The purposes for which it is put are more important, the results which entail. And if one does, then finance ministries need to get very clear what the framework is within which they sanction expenditure, incur debt, and monitor the macroeconomic consequences of doing both. The most apparent uh, place where this question has arisen is Ghana for me. Well, Ghana, to all intents and purposes, maybe I don't know the details, was actually trying to incur public debt to, to, to invest in the economy, to, to industrialize. And that's a lot of belief. Now, if that went wrong for exogenous reasons, or it went wrong for exogenous reasons, finance ministries need to know how to approach the problem, how to analyze it, and how to uh, therefore get on with responding to perhaps failures in achieving the objects intended for a particular kind of public expenditure. But all this then requires us as a prior to recognize that public debt is bad or good depending on what it is used for. And the poly crisis, the, the COVID crisis in particular, throws up, I think, uh, many uh, examples of out-of-the-box thinking on the subject. But I'm not seeing this out-of-the-box thinking translate into public finance practice yet. I'm not seeing it translate into practice in the Bretton Woods. I'm not seeing it translate other than rhetorically into discussions of the G20. And I'm not seeing it translate into a better appreciation of the political economy circumstances under which finance ministries have to take their actions. And, you know, it is not the job of finance ministries to undertake their actions by undertaking political economy analyses. That, to some extent, is our job as public intellectuals, as think tankers, as politicians. And I think this conference, therefore, is an attempt to bring these wider dimensions into the discussions that finance ministries have and try and better inform finance ministries in the trade craft of policymaking on how to cope with these wider dimensions, deal with them, and hopefully going forward, overcome them. That's my ambition for this conference. I know it's a big one, but it also means definitely, given the spectrum of people we have in this conference, that it's going to be interesting, it's going to be fun, it's going to be, I think, extremely rewarding uh, in terms of the way in which we undertake the different tasks, the different parts of the community we come from as think tanks, as academics, as finance ministry practitioners, as political actors going forward. We have quite an interesting lineup for you. And we also have a partnership here with the World Bank, which I'd like to acknowledge and thank. Uh, of course, uh, we have been very generously resourced by the Gates Foundation, uh, BMGF, who I would also like to thank. The Gates Foundation has been quite exemplary in its, in its Catholicity uh, of approach to questions of public finance. Uh, it has helped us push the boundaries of orthodoxy, and it continues to support us doing so. So I would like to acknowledge that, 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 that support. And of course, uh, I'm not there in person and I deeply regret it, but uh, my, my colleagues uh, are there and will engage and I hope to engage uh, remotely 
uh, as far as my sort of energy levels permit uh, going forward over the next two days. So have a good fun two days, uh, have a productive two days. And uh, again, on behalf of ODI, welcome to two days of fraternal, interesting and productive discussion. Thank you. I'm handing it back to Mark. Great. Well, thank you, Ratin. I think he's set out the challenge in front of us for the next two days exceptionally well. Uh, so I hope you're all geared up. I mean, it's wonderful to see so many familiar faces again uh, in this room. It's three and a half years since we last held the conference, which I think we have some interesting memories, some of us from that, that last one at the time it was held, February 2020. It's great to be back, uh, great to be back here, see so many of you here and see so many new faces as well. It's a real fantastic mix of people in the room from governments, from think tanks, from media, I understand, from the international financial institutions, uh, in academia. So we're really looking forward to the conversation. And to build on Ratin's challenge to us all, the first session we're going to be talking about uh, the role of finance ministries in the poly crisis. And um, we know this is evolving very differently across different regions. And so we're delighted to be able to welcome on our panel, Abebe Emra Selassie from the IMF, Director of the IMF Africa Department, Mark Robinson, author of uh, Bigger Government and also a consultant and advisor to many governments around the world. And we're also joined online by Mayita Kristalin from Indonesia. Uh, so very happy to have you here, Mayita. Thanks for joining us, I guess, in sort of late afternoon, early evening over there. It's great to have you here. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to uh, Abebe, who's obviously been looking in some detail about how the poly crisis, as we're dubbing it, has been playing out in Africa. So over to you, Abebe, to get us kicked off. Thank you so much, uh, Mark, and really very uh, good morning to everybody. Uh, and as you said, very nice to see some uh, quite a few familiar faces, uh, old friends uh, in the room. You know, uh, Rattan's intervention really uh, stole my thunder a bit. Uh, I thought he laid out very, very nicely all of the issues that we'll be facing. So at the risk of repeating things, uh, I want to weigh in with like three, four or five points that I wanted to make. The first one that struck me as I was thinking about this conference and the title, uh, Finance Ministries uh, in the Poly Crisis, it reminded me of, of uh, I mean, I've been thinking uh, from time to time about this paper, but uh, back in 2005, a colleague of mine, uh, Outlook and mine, ours, Peter Heller, wrote a paper um, titled Pity the Finance Minister. Uh, and this was 2005, and the concern he had at that time was about uh, the huge amounts of aid flows that countries in Africa in particular, but also other developing countries, were about to face uh, as a result of you know, post Glen Eagle's uh, push uh, to help uh, meet the MDGs at the time, and more generally kind of, you know, very technocratic approach that feeling that we can conquer development, we can address the development challenge. So the paper was waxing lyrically about, you know, how uh, ministries of finance need to think about 
uh, increasing absorption capacity, uh, how, you know, what they need to do about project selection, uh, how to deal with more macro implications of, of uh, aid flows, uh, uh, um, you know, dealing with real exchange rate appreciation, etc. When uh, I came back to work on Africa around 2014-15 um, and started going to countries and, you know, uh, meeting ministries, uh, ministers of finance, working with ministries of finance official, uh, the thing that struck me was uh, that by 2015, and these were still relatively good days, huh? the external environment was still favorable, financing relatively cheap, countries, minister, ministers were struggling with a fiscal trilemma. Uh, on the one hand, they uh, were continuing to be under huge pressure to spend, you know, uh, address all the development needs that there were. Aid flows had fallen off some, but there was still access to market. Um, but addressing through continued borrowing, we could see was going to lead to debt challenges. So that was the second leg of the dilemma, and everybody was on their case about about uh, you know want, still wanting to spend more, but not at the cost of debt. The alternative, of course, was taxation. And when uh, ministers of finance went to parliament to try and get taxes, collect uh, more revenues, they were unable to do that. There were huge political constraints on doing that. And, you know, uh, I could see many a minister of finance struggling in this trilemma. And I thought of that paper and I thought like the title of that paper, Peter's paper, Pity the Finance Minister was more apt in 2015-16. You know, uh, as always, kind of it pays to live long because, uh, you know, uh, in the context of this poly crisis, again, I cannot help but think where the title of that paper has been more apt than uh, the current conjuncture. Uh, you know, uh, and really makes me yearn for the for the for the old days. Huh? So I think the first point, my first point is that it's. I think it's in the nature of the work of a minister of finance in any country. Um, you know, the sovereign balance sheet needs, you know, has to bear a lot of the consequences of the political decisions, the economic uh, uh, issues that are unfolding, and even broader social and and uh, you know things like demographic challenges that are unfolding. Huh? And um, you know, I, I I hate to say this, but also to bear in mind that it can get worse still can get worse still unless we do something and you know four or five years from now you know people sitting in this room may be wanting to write a paper titled pity the finance minister uh, painting a very grim picture uh, so that's my first point second point um, you know the last uh, year and a half or so working with Luke uh, Euro, um, uh, my colleague in the African department and several other colleagues, we've been drawing attention to the huge funding squeeze that countries are facing at the moment in the region. Uh, you know, uh, people at the IMF, we don't, we don't go for phrases like this without reflecting deeply about it, and we tend to go for generally, you know, bland titles uh, uh, when we're, you know, working on a Rio or presentation, uh, you know, public events. And but it really was because, you know, of how brutal this condition has been that we've been using these very, very strong emotive phrases. Huh? Uh, as Ratten earlier laid out, we've, this has been a period the last three, four, five years have been a period where, you know, uh, 
as a result of the of the pandemic, of course, you know, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, everything that has unfolded, uh, the headwinds, I mean, in terms of how governments finance themselves have been just huge. Huh? So tax revenues have been undermined by, uh, you know, lower consumption, lower profitability, lower trade flows. Um, and tax revenues account for about 75, 75 to 80% of uh, how governments finance themselves. Huh? That's by far the biggest chunk of financing of any type of um, government spending. About 17-18% tends to be covered by borrowing, either domestic or external. Uh, and you know what has been depressing to see of late has been, it's not just been about the cost of borrowing going up, but actually the ability to borrow itself, the quantity itself, has been restricted. Many countries are shut out from external markets, turning to domestic markets, you know, in the past has always been difficult because of the limited financialized savings that there are. Um, and has always come at some cost of crowding out. Now, of course, governments have been relying not just uh, not just uh, causing interest rates to go up, but also but also having to rely on more monetary financing. The effect of which, of course, has been inflation, which again, you know, is another channel through which uh, the poor are being impacted. So it's been a really, really difficult period uh, for uh, government balance sheets. And you know, to conclude on the second point I'm making, when we talk about the funding squeeze, what we're talking about is not the financing challenge of you know reaching the SDGs, much less kind of the challenges that. Uh, that's uh, challenges like climate change, these longer term challenges. What I'm talking about is governments not having enough resources to maintain per capita or the spending, you know, on education, on health, or even in some cases in real terms, not being able to maintain spending in real terms. Okay, so uh, it really is a very, very heart-wrenching period to watch countries, ministers of finance, to deal with this incredibly uh, difficult uh, challenge. And of course, it's not been surprising that we've seen poverty going up, development outcomes, uh, you know, uh, reversing. Uh, and this is still the early stages. And, you know, I really, I really hate to think what the outcomes will be uh, going forward. Huh? So for every time kind of I see re read stories about how Africa has, you know, relatively gone through unscathed from the pandemic, at least in terms of the direct hit from COVID, we forget about everything else that's been going on yeah? uh, in the in countries. The, the toll that this pandemic, the poly crisis, has exacted on people has just been awful, awful. And we just are not quantifying it. We just are not reading it in real time. But my my fear is that we will see it uh, uh, in the coming years. Third point I want to make is, you know, uh, exogenous factors have uh, played a very big role, as uh, Ratan very uh, nicely laid out. But I have to say, you know, also domestic ones. Now, a word about exogenous factors. I usually hate uh, <laughs> really attributing the ills in, in, in countries in, in you know, the region I come from, Sub-Saharan Africa, always to, to uh, external events. Huh? I think politicians, policymakers, civil society, everybody has agency and there's always, I mean, often kind of the external developments are used as a crutch. This time, however, you know, I have uh, really uh, been thinking that uh, 
external factors have played a really uh, significant role. And the reason for this is, you know, if we cast our minds back to 2019 and put ourselves in the shoes of an advisor to a minister of finance, huh? helping do projections on, uh, say, the macroeconomic outlook, who would have projected in the baseline forecast any of the events uh, that have since unfolded? You know, uh, once in a generation, once in a hundred year events that have played out, but all of which, of course, have had a huge impact uh, on the output trajectory, but also uh, other key uh, economic variables. And that, I think, you know, as we blame countries for, you know, and as we, uh, as we uh, highlight kind of the debt challenges and other uh, fiscal slippages that have happened, really is also important to know that, you know, uh, nobody would have anticipated uh, and called for a different fiscal path in 2017, 18 uh, than countries were following. Yes. Deficits could have been a 1% lower, revenue mobilization 1% higher, etc. But nobody, nobody in their right mind would have anticipated everything that has fallen out. So we do have to pay heed to the fact that external factors are uh, have played a very, very significant role. So uh, that said, uh, I think uh, an important and crucial area, one which also has to be addressed going forward, where uh, policy making has fallen short. And again, I'm generalizing, of course, I mean, as always uh, in, in, in developing countries, uh, um, notably in Africa, there's huge heterogeneity of circumstances. But uh, the one area that uh, I generally see uh, governments have been very uh, uh, weak at has been, you know, in the period in the, when growth was relatively strong, when so much investment was going in the right areas, in health, in education, in infrastructure services, not much was done to capture the rate of return on all of this investment through the tax system. Okay? So tax to GDP ratios were either flat or even declining in some countries. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of reluctance to go out and collect revenues. And this is why we are seeing, for example, you know, in many cases, we see state-owned enterprises that have gone and invested in increasing electricity capacity, uh, production, electricity coverage. Um, and they're not collecting the right amounts of tariffs. The result of which, of course, is that, you know, when the pandemic came, they're unable to service their debt and the debt has to be taken over by uh, the public sector balance sheet. So we talk about stock flow adjustment and all kinds of things or hidden debt, but this is exactly, I think, that process coming out, um, coming out to play. And I think this has been a very important weakness and one that has undermined um, the fiscal outcomes that we've seen and going forward would have to be addressed. Now, uh, I wish this was a new challenge. Uh, many, many years ago, some 30 years ago, I went to school uh, here and Nick Stern used to say that, you know, the existential development challenge is the inability of developing countries to capture the rate of return on investment through their tax system. And, you know, this is a problem that's always going to be with us. It's part of the strengthening of the social contract, the, the, the political economy of, of growth. But, you know, working on that dimension will be key. Uh, and is if, if there is a permanent feature that has undermined development progress, I think it's that one and something that needs to work on. So that was my third point. Fourth point, uh, um, sorry to be in such a gloomy mood today, <laughs> but I think 
the the economics in general, but also I think <laughs> the conjuncture calls for it. The fourth point is that you know, in terms of solutions, I wish I had a magic wand. Uh, but the my fourth point really is that there's no silver bullet. Okay, we're in a period where, uh, unfortunately. Uh, uh, these poly, the poly crisis will continue. Even bigger risks are going to be, you know, are going to come to fruition, is my sense. So um, it's a period which we're going to have to navigate with uh, with a lot of caution and with a lot of gradualism. I want to, in particular, make uh, you know highlight a few points about this period. Eh? This uh, this uh, something uh, which we've called you know living on on the edge. Eh? Uh, first point I think is that you know uh, it's going to be a period of maximum extreme extreme uncertainty. Okay, in terms of how uh, budgets are formulated, in terms of how we think about growth. Uh, my favorite example of this is um, you know Michael. One way to think about this is, um, you know, the divide between solvency and liquidity when you're doing the sustainability analysis is always, always a challenging one. And, you know, you can guess it's wrong for many, uh, many reasons, and it's a judgment call. I've had at least one country case uh, where using the, you know, uh, fairly complex, fairly reasonable, I mean, complex, but also not unreasonable, the sustainability framework we have at the IMF, where uh, the, the, our assessment of solvency has changed within a six-month period from extreme insolvent to, uh, you know, a country showing, mainly facing liquidity challenge. Why? It's not just been commodity price change, but also exchange rates have moved tremendously. Um, you know, other factors, other variables have moved. So, uh, and this is without, this is, you know, without uh, debt restructuring in terms of moving from insolvent, you know, us considering this country is being relatively, uh, uh, having more solvency challenges than, uh, rather than liquidity challenges. So it's a period of extreme uncertainty and it's one which we have to be very, very careful in terms of how we think and the decisions we make really important in a period such as this to make sure that you don't take decisions that are going to be irreversible or have really very uh, grave consequences beyond beyond uh, what you're trying to address. Second point, I think, is that you have to think long term. Okay. Um, what does that mean? You know, uh, fiscal deficits on average right now are around 6% in sub-Saharan Africa, for example. Okay. Uh, my sense is to, those deficits will have to be closer to three, three, you know, three percent or so uh, to for countries to be in a better position in terms of avoiding crowding out, in terms of consistency with relatively manageable cost of, you know, relatively cheap funding, you know. But getting from, you know, one percentage point of GDP adjustment is a huge ask, huge ask in any country. I mean, um, and I'm not talking about, you know, deficits that are at 6% uh, just for one-off reasons, but really on a, on a fairly structural way. So how do we get from, you know, 6 to 3? Uh, are we going to do this over 3 years, over 5 years? Is there a possibility of doing it 8 years? Given the squeeze um, that I talked about, given the turmoil that's been caused because of the pandemic, really is important that we allow time, we give time to time to get to the optimal uh, debt stabilizing primary balance, et cetera. And here, I think counter-cyclical financing, the likes of 
the bank, the fund provide is going to be really, really crucial to give countries time to get their deficits back to uh, relatively uh, uh, reasonable levels. Of course, if that is unsustainable now, you have to restructure. But there are many, many countries, my sense is, the challenge is one of financing, uh, one need of, you know, uh, need of liquidity to tie them over while markets are shut out, while, you know, uh, while price, you know, the cost of borrowing has become so, so ridiculously high. And then the last thing I want to stress is that, you know, uh, the, you know, uh, if we think that the challenge, you know, the, the fallout I mean, one way to think about how important this issue is uh, to to uh, to be a bit more linear. What we're talking about here is, of course, the the workforce of the economy going forward. Okay, the kids that are going to be powering this global economy in 15, 20 years are have already been born. Okay? One out of every two new entrants into the global labor market in 10 years are going to come from sub-Saharan Africa. New entrants into the global market by, 20, by the early 30s. Unless we invest now in their health, in their education, we really are going to be undermining you know, the generation of, uh, generation of uh, workforce that's going to be powering this global economy. And I cannot think of a more myopic approach than the one that's being taken by many uh, G7 countries, others also, when they're cutting official development assistance as they have been in the last couple of years. Okay. So, you know, as much as as much as there is a call to arms for countries to do better in terms of how they're managing fiscal policy, really, really important also the international community doesn't lose sight of this really super, super important and very, very strategic development that's unfolding in Africa. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kevin. So I think Abebe is very helpfully built on Ratin's uh, opening challenge to us. Um, I mean, it's a very incisive commentary, a very sobering commentary in many ways. But I, 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 this um, call to think about the long term and the importance of thinking about the long term, despite extreme in the, in the face of extreme uncertainty, but also in the face of these short term crises, feels like a pretty central, tough challenge to navigate. And Mark, I know you've been giving some thought to, to this in to the OECD context about this sort of balancing of the, the long term and the short term. Perhaps you can reflect a bit on, on you know, some of the discussions you've been having in, in that regard. Uh, yes, well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Mark. It's uh, a great pleasure to be here. Um, I think this conference is going to be very rewarding and we're touching on a lot of vital issues. So as we all know, uh, ministries of finance are facing acute short-term pressures right now. There's uh, the aftermath of COVID, there's a Ukraine war, uh, uh, there's inflation, all of these things are major issues. But I want to focus more on uh, long-term pressures and long-term pressures on the spending side. And I've been asked to, uh, in this context to focus on some of the themes that I developed in my uh, relatively recent book, uh, Bigger Government, the focus of which was uh, explicitly on advanced countries, but uh, many of the uh, 
points that I discuss in there are also relevant either very directly or have major ramifications for lower income and medium income countries as well. In that book, I uh, suggested that if we look at the long term in the sense of from now till the middle, middle of the century, we're looking at major expenditure side pressures in advanced countries of at least 7% of GDP, which is a lot of money. And uh, you know, if that's the case, what that suggests is that the fiscal pressures that are already being experienced by governments around the world are going to be intensified very considerably. So what are those pressures? Well, uh, I want to focus on three in particular, uh, and these are climate change, their health, and their population aging. Now, that, those issues, that list of issues won't surprise people, and I'm not going to bore you by telling you, for example, why population aging is important. So let me just focus on a couple of things that maybe are less obvious. Firstly, in relation to climate change, we all know that major investments are going to be required. What I'd like to underline is that the impact on government finances will be determined very quickly, uh, very much by uh, how those major investment costs are divided between government, between the budget and the private sector, meaning households and businesses. And that will depend very much on politics and decisions about uh, how much government shoulders, ends up shouldering costs that really, in economic terms, should be left with the private sector. The, uh, and that, of course, relates to issues such as the choice of reliance on price mechanisms versus subsidies. The other point is that the ultimate cost will be obviously determined by how long we defer sufficient action for. The longer we fail to act on a sufficient scale, the greater the ultimate cost of climate change uh, action is going to be. The second is rela in relation to health. And in my analysis, uh, this is by far and away the biggest expenditure pressure on government over the coming decades, greater than climate change uh, and greater than uh, population aging. So I want to emphasize why this is. And it's certainly not because of the pandemic. Those, uh, that's, that's a purely transitional effect. Fundamentally, the reason why uh, health spending will grow so much in the coming decades is the same reason it's grown so much over the past three decades. And that is that the key driver of health expenditure is the increasing technological capabilities of medicine. In other words, it's the fact that medicine is always developing more and better treatments what we're getting from medicine is much more than we got in the past and the costs rise with that. That will continue into the future. But I'm also suggesting that uh, what will be different from the future and what will accelerate the rate of growth of health expenditure is the bioscience revolution. And the reason why the bioscience revolution is important is the uh, massive move into precision and customised medicine. Medicine which is not only more technologically complex, but what is more crucial is it's medicine which will be targeting, which is increasingly targeting conditions which are, medical treatments are conditions which are uh, characterised by only a small percentage of the population. Something like an, a, a treatment for cystic fibrosis, which only affects about uh, 100,000 people around the world. The lack of economies of scale 
in treatment for precision and customized uh, uh, medical treatments means that the costs of these will rise very significantly. Put these two things together and you have an accelerated increase in health expenditure. And uh, this, this I think has got huge implications for uh, pressure on universal uh, health care. The cost of covering this uh, increasingly advanced medicine under universal healthcare systems will rise a lot. That Im implies a lot of pressure towards rising inequalities of healthcare treatment in the advanced world and even more between the advanced world and the developing world. The affordability of, uh, of, of what modern medicine has increasingly to offer in the developing world is a huge challenge to state the obvious. Uh, Finally, there's population ageing. Um, look, we all know about pension uh, pressure. I just want to suggest that in advanced countries, at least uh, the costs of uh, aged care, social care is a more is a bigger issue right now because, in fact, uh, many governments have taken a lot of action on the pension front. In many cases, this will actually take, you know, a, a decade or two to, for the, the effects to fully uh, transpire. But uh, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> we have no slides them? here. I apologise. We'll have the first slide. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and uh, let's not worry. Ah, yeah, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, on on population ageing, as I say, uh, pensions we know about, uh, although the pressure will subside. Aged care is a huge issue, and primarily because of the costs of uh, dementia and other very serious disabilities for long-term care. Um, the one thing I'd just like to add is that healthcare is not, despite what many people seem to think, primarily a demographic issue. It's not primarily an issue of population ageing. Amongst the public finance community, a lot of people seem to take this for granted, that healthcare is like pension spending. It's mainly demographically driven. It's not something that many health economists uh, believe. And, uh, you know, uh, the key point here is that how much you spend on healthcare does not just automatically increase with longevity, it increases much less than longevity. If you believe that healthcare is primarily driven by population ageing, then I would ask you to reflect on why it is that in Japan, which has an, a population ageing structure twi twice the portion of old people and very elderly people, as in uh, most other OECD countries, why the health expenditure is only roughly average in OECD terms. So healthcare is mainly a technological rather than a population factor. The fine thing, final thing I want to mention on the spending pressure side is the uh, pressure on governments to compensate fiscally for cost of living rises. And we've seen a lot of this, of course, in the last little while. This links very closely with the, uh, the climate change issue. As I said before, uh, what will really determine how much governments spend on climate change will be the extent to which governments end up uh, bearing in the budget costs which in economic terms should be borne by households or by businesses. And in particular, the unwillingness to use to push carbon taxes up to the required level, the propensity to use subsidies instead, this risks multiplying by at least uh, at least doubling the costs that governments should be bearing for climate change. Uh, and that's not to mention the 
unwise subsidies of, uh, of fossil fuel costs rises that Ratin and others have referred to so far. So uh, add all these things together, and uh, it really does uh, suggest that there will be uh, very large increases in public expenditure in, in advanced countries over the coming decades. Uh, most of these will also affect developing countries, and the demographic point is very important here because while uh, uh, it's true that advanced countries on average are suffering population aging much more than developing countries. Because pressures like climate change and health are not primarily about democratic uh, demographics that'll be felt very much in the developing world as well. Just as an aside here, it seems to me that this obviously really underlines the importance of doing everything we can to boost productivity in the economy. And that includes the need to vigorously exploit digital technologies. And uh, I must say in this context, I'm not impressed by all the scaremongering about artificial intelligence and the other technological risks that we face right now. We have to embrace these rather than run away from them. Uh, turning to fiscal and uh, macroeconomic risks, obviously, as we've discussed, we went into the pandemic with unsustainable fiscal settings in many countries around the world, not all, but many. Structurally, the position, as Ratin said, and has been illustrated in the case of Africa, uh, is worse after the pandemic because Spending is structurally higher and governments have failed, generally speaking, to rise, to increase taxes by the amount that's appropriate. So in this context, the sort of long term spending pressures that I'm talking about really risk aggravating the situation uh, considerably. And, you know, we've got to be blunt about this. This does raise in the medium and longer term the risk of major fiscal crises debt sustainability crises. Uh, it raises the risk of rising inflation due, due to the monetization of deficits in countries where monetary policy is allowed to accommodate this. Now, uh, you know, uh, under these circumstances, with these sort of spending pressures, what would be the right policies technically? Well, it, it seems to me firstly that uh, making compensatory spending cuts. In other words, uh, in the face of the spending pressures I'm talking about, cutting spending elsewhere in order to stop spending rising in aggregate uh, is not feasible in most countries. Not everywhere, but in most countries, this is not practical. It is extremely important to be scrutinizing public spending very carefully to make cuts where you can. But I don't see in most countries the potential to, uh, to offset this. And therefore, I think aggregate spending will in general grow and that small government is a fantasy. Uh, so under these circumstances, what are the other alternatives? Well, there's debt funding, of course, as has been touched on, and uh, debt funding for investment in particular. You know, I'm all in favor of debt funding for appropriate investment. I'm a great believer in the golden rule of public finance. However, not when debt is already too high. Let's be realistic about this. If we're in a country where debt is already too high, that means we don't have the scope to use uh, debt even further, even when we're talking about worthwhile investments. So, you know, it seems to me that the economic logic of this is that 
the only uh, way of really dealing with this has to be higher taxes. But as we all know, this is politically extraordinarily difficult. Uh, it's We've talked about this in developing country context where the difficulties that governments face, which are, I guess, mainly political, but also technical, the difficulties of, ra of raising sufficient revenue, or has been mentioned of even charging properly for electricity, uh, we're very aware of this, but this is also a problem in the developed uh, world where governments are refusing to recognise the reality of the need to raise taxes, and I might say this is the UK is a pretty good example of this. It's, it's easy to blame the politicians, but this is fundamentally a problem with the way electorates see things. And, you know, um, it, it's sort of interesting in this context, just as an aside, I'm often struck on the health side that when health insurance premiums rise, everybody thinks it's a loss in uh, their standard of living. But in reality, people are getting more and more for the health premiums they say. So this is a bit like complaining that because I'm spending more and more on travel and luxury, somehow this is... Uh, uh, this is a reduction in my cost of living. It's a perception uh, problem on, on that front. Okay, well, uh, coming to implications for ministries of finance, uh, a few points which I think are uh, going to be obvious to, uh, to all of us. The first is that uh, we need to be even tougher and more selective in our approach to spending decisions, whether that concerns decisions about new spending or whether it concerns spend decisions about uh, existing or so-called baseline expenditure. It means that ministries of finance all around the world need to further strengthen their capacity in expenditure policy and in revenue policy, that they need to deepen their understanding of sectoral policy and expenditure issues and uh, to be even clearer about the principles that govern, govern the appropriate expenditure side role of the state, the division between uh, what the state should be spending money on and what should be left to the private sector. You know, we don't have the luxury of the Ministry of Finance taking a hands-off view and saying, you know, in the interest of decentralization, all of this will be left to the spending ministries themselves to decide. Now, of course, in making this point, um, immediately we have to recognize that many advanced countries around the world have, uh, over past decades, done ex exactly this. They've developed more and more policy capacity within their ministries and finance. However, there's a need to go even further and in the developing world, this is a huge issue, the need to shift from uh, ministries of finance that are basically accounting bodies to bodies which have a policy uh, capacity. Uh, we need to strengthen the PFM processes that relate to expenditure decision making. And that means the processes by which we decide which new spending is going to be authorised in the budget and which will not. That means good public investment management decision making. Uh, and that includes taking a very critical approach to propositions which are put, put forward for climate-related investment. We've got to avoid a situation where any idea for a climate-related investment uh, gets the nod through because we know climate is a big issue. We've got to be very, very careful what we spend money on in that area. And it applies to current expenditure as well. But then a, a hobby horse of mine is the need also to uh, carefully review and keep under review baseline expenditure 
existing expenditure, and that includes the use of mechanisms such as spending review, which are increasingly being applied around the world. Finally, um, the, uh, all of the themes that have been pushed on the fiscal policy front over past decades, the importance of good aggregate fiscal policy and practices, fiscal rules, fiscal councils, fiscal transparency, all of these sorts of things, they're not passe in any way. They're more important now than they were in the past. You know, there's a bit of sort of magical thinking after the pandemic that somehow the, uh, you know, the restrictions on sound fin public finance had disappeared, that somehow we could, uh, we could spend more without worrying about this, that we could take a more relaxed attitude to debt. It is exactly the contrary of this. Now is the time we really have to get public finances under control. And I think this point was made very powerfully in the African context. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, this has major implications both for fiscal policy and for PFM. So let me turn finally, although my focus has been uh, mainly on advanced countries to a couple of thoughts about ministries of finance in low and medium income countries. The first is to say that everything we've talked about a minute ago about ministries of finance in general applies to low income and medium income countries as well. In many cases, it applies even more strongly. Uh, the importance of strengthening fiscal policy and PFM process related to fiscal policy is even greater in the developing world. And we all know about the problems of uh, concealed deficits and debt uh, in Africa and elsewhere in the, uh, in the developing world, putting things off balance sheet, the failure to recognize properly uh, medium and long-term implications of spending decisions, the failure, once again, that's been alluded to, to take a sufficiently critical approach to what uh, investment projects we're gonna fund uh, with debt compare a country like Rwanda that's been very careful in what it's decided to invest in with a lot of other countries that have really invested in a whole of the things that don't justify debt at all. Importance of, uh, of uh, ongoing efforts to discourage corruption, whether it's through reform and procurement process, state enterprise financial management, a whole range of other areas. The need for more realistic expenditure decision-making processes to make the right decisions about the allocation of limited government resources. And that once again means good processes for new spending decisions, good processes for reviewing baselines and based on a differentiation between these two. We had a discussion yesterday about uh, planning and uh, budgeting. And the need to integrate planning and budgeting has been a, a, a big theme of PFM reform for decades. And, you know, we shouldn't be negative about this because in quite a few countries, a lot, of being, a lot of progress has been made to integrating the two. But it is nevertheless disappointing that there are many developing countries where planning and budgeting don't talk to one another, where a strategic plan, uh, where a big government plan, a national development plan is developed on a blue sky basis without any recognition of the distinction between baseline ongoing spending commitments and new spending, and where it basically therefore is very little guide to the budget. This is, to say the least, uh, very disappointing. I want to finish, and I'm sorry I'm overstretching my, my welcome a little bit by making one final point, which is the need for practicality 
Um, it is, uh, I think, for all of us who are practitioners in the PFM space, frustrating when we see uh, a lot of resources and effort going into uh, work on the development in, in developing country uh, contexts of systems and mechanisms which are just unbelievably complicated and not terribly useful. And frankly, I put most of the work in accrual accounting in that category. I'm not opposed to accrual accounting, but I don't think it's a priority for advanced countries. I see the same thing in relation to evaluation systems, people who think that every low-income country should have a system of fancy impact evaluation. And I see a lot of performance budgeting systems which are vastly too complicated. I could go on with a further list. Anyway, I will uh, leave it there and thank you for your forbearance, Mark. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. I, I mean, I think you've laid out very well there some of, uh, I suppose, some emerging pressures on costs of public finances around health, demography, climate change. But a sort of an, uh, an urging us to not forget past lessons on what makes effective institutions. Um, so hopefully we can come back to some of those uh, those discussions. <laughs> I now before, two two things. I, it was remiss of me before not to welcome the online audience. So welcome. I hope you're in, uh, enjoying proceedings. We will have one more presentation, but please feel free to send us some questions uh, because after this presentation, we'll, we'll, we'll open to the floor. So you can uh, please feel free to put questions into the chat. Um, it's now my great pleasure to welcome Majita, uh, Majita Kristalin from the Ministry of Finance in Indonesia. Uh, Majita is the advisor to the minister there, but also the Sherpa um, to the finance ministry on the Coalition of Finance Ministries for Climate Action. I mean, I think climate change is, I suppose, the uh, existential long-term challenge that we face as societies. And in terms of sort of navigating these short-term pressures uh, with these longer-term challenges and not putting off difficult fiscal decisions, these are some of the central questions that we're facing as a group to, uh, over these next two days. Majito, I'm hoping you can, you know, tell us the answers from what you've learnt, uh, what you've been doing in, in Indonesia. Over to you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Abebe, and also Mark for a very good presentation. It really touched into some of the most important uh, things that we in the Ministry of Finance are currently facing. Uh, spot on for some of the issues laid out for the medium uh, income countries like Indonesia. So I, I would like to give you a little bit of a background of Indonesia macroeconomic conditions uh, after the pandemic. Like Abebe said, there's no silver bullet, but I do still think there's a prudent macro fiscal management that can actually help you get through some of the difficulties after the pandemic. Uh, after COVID, Indonesia has actually managed to rebound back to our potential growth of 5%, uh, similar uh, before the pandemic. Uh, all growth uh, in both in nominal, real term, and also growth level has come back uh, to before the pandemic and even more. Uh, we didn't face uh, the really high inflation because some of the inflation uh, from our side is usually also from the logistical costs, which we try to manage uh, not only through the 
you know, interest rate management by the Bank Indonesia, but also by making sure uh, supply side is also, uh, you know, working uh, pretty good, especially for the volatile uh, food price. So Indonesia was able to recover uh, fast without having to be faced with the reality to increase uh, interest rate faster when the economy are still in the recovery mode. Uh, on the fiscal sustainability side, uh, we have managed uh, our debt to, to GDP ratio uh, to stay, uh, uh, to come back to the level uh, before the pandemic uh, and even uh, could be less after this. And also uh, government bond ownership, usually Indonesia is 40% of foreign, now it's 15% uh, increasing the domestic consumer base. Uh, and also on the fiscal side, uh, it's actually a good bang for the buck because we have returned to our uh, stipulated law fiscal uh, maximum, uh, fiscal deficit maximum at 3% of GDP uh, since 2022. So basically we're out, uh, we, uh, we are above our threshold for two years during the pandemic and already uh, go back to the level set in the law, which is 3% of GDP. Uh, so I think uh, not all countries uh, are uh, facing an equal uh, challenge uh, and also the way uh, countries, institutions, regulations and the way uh, they manage the macro fiscal uh, during the pandemic, of course, differs. It's like uh, threading a thin line between, you know, you want to put, a, to put a gas on growth, but also you would like to be prudent at the same time. Uh, speakers before have discussed about the effect of climate change and how it's actually interlinked and even over overlap with some of the other issues uh, for leaks, including uh, rising debt, uh, food price inflation, energy, and with the geoeconomic fragmentations, uh, it creates a more uh, uncertain world for Ministry of Finance to be able to deal with and also not only going back to the growth level of development level that we aspire our countries to be, but also to tackle some of the issues that are actually a global public goods issues such as climate change. So because the challenges are different, we cannot be business as usual. At the Coalition of Finance Minister of Climate Action, uh, a lot of ministers have said that we also need to find a new way to revamp the way we plan for policy and also to put climate action at the core of our policy strategies. Um, you have uh, probably anticipated the upcoming uh, global stock take discussion in COP28. And uh, the result is, of course, we all know we are actually way behind our Paris Agreement target. From the 1.5 degree, we are already in 1.1 now. Of course, with the bigger challenge uh, to lower the emission reduction, to increase the emission reduction, uh, investment needed uh, for climate is also increasing. While at the same time, countries that are more vulnerable to climate are mostly also more vulnerable to that crisis. And a lot of countries in the leaks, uh, list is actually also have a higher chance of uh, facing with a higher degree of climate uh, risk or crisis. 
So even countries uh, are following the NDC, uh, like Indonesia, we're on track on the NDCs and a lot of members uh, talk about also on the long-term strategy and also the net zero emission. Uh, according to the report that, you know, even with the NDC and uh, uh, net zero emission target, which most countries are pledging at the 2050, uh, we are still way off uh, the target. So quite often, uh, the Ministry of Environment in every country is the one uh, that's responsible for the plans and also regular updates for NDC and also Net Zero. Uh, but also close coordination that are actually needed between the ministry that handling environment, energy, transportation, industry, and also the Ministry of Finance are sometimes not automatic close coordination between them in some of the issues, for example, like climate issues. Uh, Indonesia is currently working on the energy transition mechanism. We created a country platform that created a space for close coordination between government agencies and to be able to you know, crowd in private investment into energy transition uh, projects. Uh, but of course, countries differ in the depthness of our relationship and uh, a lot of countries uh, do, uh, from our survey in the coalition is showing that they're also facing challenging from the institution side. So it's not only you know theory at the macro level, but who's the actor inside uh, a country is also quite challenging uh, for a multi-sector issue such as climate. Uh, finance ministers are usually or often the interlocutor in, in the government uh, because it's oversee revenue and expenditure. It's basically control the budget for all other line ministries. So it's natural uh, uh, ministries that can be, uh, you know, uh, have uh, more of uh, convening power. Yeah. So MOP usually shape a country policy environment through budget or investment plan, uh, crowding in uh, of private investment plan, including the risking investment, etc. Uh, Ministry of Finance usually manage different issues, including uh, climate, without sometimes have the full analytical capabilities uh, in order to do uh, climate. Uh, most of the ministries uh, from the survey that we have is well aware of climate change, well aware of the impact of climate change, well aware that we're behind uh, in the world, and are you know supporting the mitigation and adaptation solution for climate. The coalition of finance ministers uh, was created in 2018 uh, with 39 countries. Now we have 90 countries already, uh, accounting for almost 70% of global GDP and covering uh, at least 40% of global carbon emission. So, so it offers actually a global vector of coordination of finance ministries on climate action, both in terms of domestic enhancements of capabilities, but also international support for actions. We're also always part of the Finance Day at the COP. Uh, so if you're interested to join our event, feel free to come because we are planning and want to continue coordinating uh, at the global level, not only at the national level, between Ministry of Finance and Ministry of Environment, because we think that this area is really uh, need to be strengthened in order for a country to uh, you know, be able to 
uh, have a, a more effective climate policy. Um, according to our survey, the knowledge of finance ministers on climate matters are actually an event. Uh, so on top of that, the country level internal coordination between these different ministries are not seamless. So not all countries have a unit at the country level that coordinating all climate issues uh, like the Climate Envoy Office, for example. And not all finance ministries actually have a DG level climate unit. So sometimes it's one down the minister, sometimes two down and sometimes three down. So you can imagine when coordinating a big climate policy uh, at the national or global level, it could be challenging for most countries. Uh, when we survey members, they also said that they have patchy or inadequate access to tools and analytical capabilities for quantitative assessment of climate risk. Uh, of course, we'll, a lot of countries are getting the technical assistance from different institutions, but I pointed uh, Mark a suggestion to not make it too complicated that you cannot actually apply the, the instruments for policy uh, and also opportunities in addressing climate change and mitigation uh, as well as adaptation is important. Uh, they also said that peer learning between finance ministries are an essential uh, enablers for raising ambition and action. So we're encouraging uh, an exchange uh, uh, between one ministry to another. Uh, we're planning between the co-chairs, uh, Indonesia and Netherlands, to send our staff, uh, you know, Indonesia to Netherlands and Netherlands to Indonesia to increase uh, the peer learning between finance ministers. Uh, more country also has started to create a climate unit within the Ministry of Finance at different level. Uh, at the national level, still challenging. And hence, you know, for big items, tickets such as energy transition mechanism, sometimes, uh, for example, in the case of Indonesia, the president is forming another team to tackle these issues because it will involve a lot of ministries and institutions. There are initiatives within Ministry of Finance to mainstream climate policy uh, with enhancement of macro finance modeling and also long-term policy that address impact uh, of climate to core growth and also to employment. Uh, Ministry of Finance also works on policy that could crowd in sustainable finance with fiscal disincentive, the risking mechanism, etc. For Indonesia, uh, through coalition, uh, we now have a new initiative. We call it Coalition of, for Capacity on Climate Actions. We have launched in our previous ministerial meeting. Uh, this is in coordination with the World Bank. We try to convene finance ministers, and uh, it's more like a demand-driven solution and asking them uh, and giving the countries the integrated and also common solutions specific to what they request and to the level of difficulty that or, or complexity that they're willing to take. So we're trying to fill the gap of knowledge uh, and dissemination uh, and also the demand-driven because country-specific socioeconomic can dif differ. The program will pay attention. Uh, 
um, attention to another country is cited, there will be an assessment and there will be a demand analysis uh, by the team. Uh, we, we, we are planning to have a regional and also thematic hub to play an essential role to connect the capacity building needs in a wide range of knowledge uh, provided by, uh, by different institutions that are part of the coalition as well. Uh, so there's a lot that we can do. Uh, Indonesia as a country is also active in advocating the need um, of a global architecture for transition finance. During Indonesia G20 presidency last year, we are uh, also supporting the initiative to, you know, to create the new asset class, the new transition asset class, enhanced financing as well. Uh, but also in the ASEAN chairmanship this year, Indonesia is uh, working together with other countries to revise the ASEAN taxonomy to include also the uh, transition activities that are needed by countries in order to make uh, the change needed. So uh, I, I would like to stop by saying that the Ministry of Finance uh, role is uh, very crucial at the country level as the interlocutor and also the holder of the budget, usually the most important uh, ministry because they always sit in the middle uh, and have a convening power. Uh, and hence, uh, we need to invest more in, you know, making Ministry of Finance around the world understand more about, you know, these different challenges and how they solve it. And in fact, to foster coordination with other ministry because not all countries uh, has this, uh, you know, climate unit above uh, the ministry level, uh, but below the head of state. Uh, I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Right. Thank you very much, Majita. So, I mean, that's uh, so not just pity the finance minister, also support the finance minister to convene, to bring people together. Um, that's uh, like, very useful to hear about Indonesia's uh, experiences coming out of the crisis. And I think useful lessons to be learned from that. I now can sort of pass over to the fun bit where you can get to ask the panel some questions. Uh, we have about 25, 20 to 25 minutes. I'm going to take one round of questions from the room and then there's some questions coming in online. So if you could introduce yourself uh, and your institutional affiliation. There's a couple of microphones, I think, uh, going around. So I've got this Philip with a hand up in the in the corner there, uh, just, just just there next to Bishop. Uh, hi, good morning, and uh, thank you uh, to uh, for this excellent opening panel. My name is Philip Kauser. I'm with the University of Potsdam in Germany. Um, I think Ratin laid down quite a challenge for us uh, when he opened this by saying crisis is unprecedented, completely new things need to happen. This is something that ministries of finance will have to cope with in unprecedented ways. I feel like the panel sort of disagreed with him. And I wonder if the panelists would disagree with my assessment there, because if I'm listening to Mark and uh, Masita, I'm, what I'm hearing is essentially business as usual. Uh, yes, the policy uh, challenge is terrifying and all of that, but in terms of how ministries of finance are going to cope, it's do what you would have done anyway. 
keep down spending, bully line ministries, uh, challenge their policies, uh, develop the best instruments to achieve all that. That sounds like something that would have been just as valid in 1980, 1990, 2000, 2010, as it is in 2020. Is, is that a fair summary of where we are? Thank you, Philip. Take a couple more. So, Serda. Thank you, Serdar Yilmaz from the World Bank. I'll try to ask the same question in a different way to Abebe and Mark. So, as I understand from Abebe, and I agree, so debt is unsustainable and the cost of borrowing is ridiculously high. And from Mark, uh, there are huge expansion pressures coming from climate change, healthcare population in the developing countries. So what needs to happen in debt-ridden countries so that we can get out of this crisis? And what needs to be happened in developed countries so that we can get out of this crisis? And the third part of it is private capital markets. Uh, what needs to happen in private capital markets so that we can get out of this crisis? Many of the countries, especially African countries, they, they borrowed heavily from capital markets as well when the capital markets were awash with cash. Uh, now it's time to pay back. Is it what needs to happen there as well? Great. Thank you, sir. Uh, let's take a couple more. Baba. Thank you very much. My name is Baba Musa. I'm from YFM. I want to also, uh, my question relates uh, more uh, like um, closer to the previous uh, speaker, but um, um, from the, pre the two presenters, what we um, think going forward is uh, the cost of borrowing. How do we bring it down? as African countries. Because um, what we see as solution to uh, the future borrowing uh, is, is domestic borrowing. However, what is happening now in most African countries, and if you also follow the recent uh, community by the Association of uh, Central Banks, uh, they tend to, the central banks now tend to delve into issues that uh, outside central bank control, particularly developmental functions. And many, many central bank laws now allow them to, to spend uh, rather than, I mean, on other issues rather than focusing on, you know, controlling inflation and, of course, uh, the interest rate. So what is happening now is that uh, most African countries are experiencing very high inflation and uh, that results into high borrowing cost. And because of the developmental functions that are delved into the central by the central banks, it is now making them difficult to control inflation and, and interest rate. But then the laws allow them. So how do we address this issue to bring down the cost of borrowing so that uh, countries can uh, resort into domestic borrowing as a source of finance? Thank you. I think I'm going to let, let the panel respond to those because they've already three quite chunky questions and then we'll take a, a second round. So I've got, I mean, the, is this business as usual or, um, you know, for finance, oh, different environment, but from an institutional perspective, is this business as usual? Uh, what can we do to bring down the cost of borrowing? 
And there's also some questions, uh, which is similar, I think, a bit to the questions Serdo was ra uh, raising in the context of capital markets. Uh, Bebe, I don't know if you want to take a first uh, stab. Oh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> okay. So is this business as usual? I mean, the pandemic, I think, showed us that, I mean, brought together the world in a number of ways, and there's now fresh thinking about how we're going to be funding development. I'll give you an example. Uh, long been obvious that with the extremely heterogeneous creditor, bilateral official creditor base that we now had, we would need more than just the Paris Club to do debt restructurings. I don't think uh, the G20 common framework, this quasi G20 creditor club that has been created would have happened upset the pandemic. Yeah? So there was bold initiative. The thinking that's now going on about how best to use the balance sheet of the uh, multilateral development banks, the you know reallocation of um, sorry the rechanneling of SDRs, the SDR allocation itself. So there were a number of very very bold moves, emergency financing that we were able to provide extremely quickly uh, by the IMF. So there was quite a lot of initiatives that allowed for you know the period at least there to be a very strong counter cyclical response to uh, to what has unfolded. What but that needs to be sustained and i think that's what we're talking about partly so there, there are places like if you will kind of there's been a nudge in the trajectory that odi was uh, in official development assistance was heading in etc so there has indeed been i think uh, some change but the fundamentals huh, in terms of how you finance development over the long term you know there's no getting away from countries needing to increase their tax base none okay. no country wants to be at the mercy of uh, external financing so the fundamental way you address that is of course building the the tax domestic tax capacity and it's a gradual process increasing revenues by half to one percentage points a year and that has to go on i don't think there's a magic bullet to doing this uh, second uh, of course countries should be borrowing on more you know, concessional terms, ideally, but that's exactly the point I've been, you know, that gave rise to the period of uh, countries turning to markets, exactly because long-term development financing was declining, long-term concessional financing was declining. Ministers of Finance had, had to choose between foregoing a development project or going and borrowing at more expensive rates. So we still have to come back to helping countries prioritize better, choose better selection, but unless we provide alternatives to market financing, this is, you know, this, this issue is going to come up, come up once, uh, you know, uh, markets open, okay? Uh, it's difficult to, if, if you put yourself in a position of a minister to say that, you know, because we're gonna have the sustainability problems 10 years down the road, I'm not gonna build a school, I'm not gonna build a clinic, I'm not gonna build this bridge, that is so critical. And so, Again, we have to put alternatives on the table. Uh, lastly, uh, I did not say that is unsustainable. <laughs> Again, you know, we, I, you know, uh, if there's one thing that's we've been uh, a broken record, I, I really, really dislike this way that you know Africa's middle name has become debt. Okay. <laughs> Africa has a financing challenge. There are a number of countries that are facing significant 
death vulnerable. I mean, the region is death vulnerabilities have risen in the region. Quite in you know seven eight countries, it's death has become unsustainable, and they really need to have death workouts. But for the vast majority of countries, the challenge they're facing is very expensive borrowing costs, which is actually adding to those debt vulnerabilities. And there is something that can be done to defray that. You know, providing alternative means of financing, governments taking uh bold action to to control deficits etc so uh you know th th there is a debt problem <coughs> debt levels uh interest payment has gone up but let's not generalize and say that everybody's uh, got a yeah, unsustainable uh, debt situation thank you baby mark uh yes uh, business as usual well i mean clearly given the magnitude of the challenges that are being faced around the world it's not business as usual. Um, what we're really talking about here, I guess, is whether uh, the sort of instruments that we need on the fiscal policy front, on the expenditure policy front, on the PFM front, somehow need to be uh, radically different than in the past in order to face these challenges. There's a sort of a, a vague critique of the existing doctrines of fiscal policy and PFM, which is sort of based on the notion that you know, the way we've done it in the past has been based on flawed doctrines of austerity, too much focus on worrying about debt. Well, you know, uh, uh, I uh, absolutely agree with the critiques of austerity if it means a, uh, a Cameron-style uh, attempt to focus fiscal consolidation through ruthless cuts in public expenditure. Particularly given the spending pressures we're faced with, I don't think the idea of smaller government uh, is uh, is going to fly anywhere in the world. So I'm happy to sign up to that. But the notion that somehow uh, we need to worry less about debt and so on seems to me to be desperately misplaced. And I have to say in this context, people who suggest that, for example, we should stop worrying about debt and instead focus on net worth, uh, which is basically the idea implicit in that is that any investment that we spend in, we shouldn't worry about the debt that's accumulated with that. That strikes me as a very dangerous and misplaced idea. So the focus on uh, debt, on fiscal sustainability is, as I've said before, in my view, more important than, than ever. Well, what does it mean for the toolkit? Well, it, I'd be unabashed in saying that I think that many of the tools that have been developed for fiscal policy, whether it's principles of fiscal rules, of fiscal transparency, many of the uh, uh, good practices in public financial management that international organisations have preached over the past decades remain at least as valid now as they are in the past. The idea that everything we've done in the past is somehow passé and we need uh, to throw it out, in, in my view, doesn't fly at all. Does that mean that everything in the existing toolkit is, uh, is good? Absolutely not. I've already uh, referred to uh, various lines of reforms that have been advanced, which in, in my view uh, uh, simply don't fly in much, probably every, anywhere in the world very well, but particularly in low income and developing countries. It's important to refocus what we do on what uh, matters the, uh, the, the very most. So uh, yes to, uh, uh, to uh, a critical review of our practice in these areas. No to the idea that uh, everything we've done in the past can be categorised as, all the tools we've used in the past can be categorised as business in use, uh, as, uh, as usual, and that we should somehow uh, uh, adopt a radically different set of tools than those we've used in the past. Thank you, Mark. Majita, any, 
Thank you. Refer- yeah, please. Yeah, so is it business as usual? Uh, well, if the question is whether the policy advice that uh, a country should do or Ministry of Finance should do, is probably not much different with what we would suggest in the 80s or 90s. Uh, it's also on the gap of how countries actually implement uh, those best practices, right? For example, like the PFM, uh, Mark uh, mentioned, you know, for leak and make maybe can focus more on corruption. The level of corruption is still high on average. And of course, uh, th- those same suggestions uh, do still apply. Uh, the balance is actually, uh, for example, like Asian financial crisis before and after. You can see that the behavior of ASEAN and Asia countries in general in terms of external debt is completely different. So, in fact, uh, the conversation in ASEAN is more about whether you have uh, you leverage enough uh, to rebound the economy after the pandemic because it has also changed. So sometimes after a certain big event at the global level or at the regional level, countries sort of converge into doing better practices of the same old suggestions uh, that we probably heard. So some of it is BAU, but in a more refined version that you actually have to do it. Uh, number two is that I think what is needed to be not at BAU is that at the country level, of course, you need macro prudency, you need you know, your fiscal to be sustainable, etc. Uh, the balance between taking more revenue during uh, uh, a recovery period is probably hard. And country like Indonesia, for example, we are still facing challenges in taxing the informal economy, which is still a big part of the economy. So you're kind of taxing high for the formal one and less for the informal one. And I'm sure every country countries uh, has actually uh, a different challenge in this. So I think uh, for this is that we need a more a multilateral approach because climate and also pandemic is both our global public goods and, and we are not doing enough for global public goods. And who's supposed to play the government, the concessional, the middle ground, the convening power at this global public goods is basically the MDBs, the World Banks uh, of the world, the ADBs, the IMF are uh, working on this in the middle, which is why we, we really think that the reform uh, for MDBs to actually be able to leverage more, to service more for more uh, client-oriented, uh, the shareholder more equity, more leveraging. How can you uh, have you know a multiply of less than one to one? So of every one dollar of investment at MDB, MDBs, you're only crowding in uh, around sixty cent of the private investment. So we're clearly not doing enough in this multilateral. And like any public goods. You cannot work on it by yourself because of the externality nature of it. So what needs to be outside of the business as usual at the bigger uh, scale is, I think, you know, the way we manage how we solve things together uh, at the global level, uh, the, um, you know, uh, looking back at the multilateralism and MDB reform. Thank Great. You. Thank you, Rosita. I'm going to take one quick round of questions and then let you get, get people get their coffee and also ask one question myself, abuse my chair's privilege. But So we've got a question there with the gentleman. Uh, yes, uh, it's on. It's on? Yeah. Well, my name is Molly Shafa from the 
finance ministry in Liberia. Uh, Mark, you spoke about corruption being one of the factors abiding public financial management. And uh, that is particularly true for my part of the world. Uh, I'd just like to get your thoughts on uh, how do you think public financial management practitioners <clears throat> and think tanks, what role could they play in mitigating uh, corruption, particularly so when uh, they are subject to the authority of political actors who are the main perpetrators of corruption? Thank you. One more question from the room, and then I've got one online and one from me. Yes, gentlemen. Uh, thank you. Uh, Aliyu, uh, yeah, from Liberia also. Uh, my, I, I would like uh, Abebe to also talk a bit more about uh, expanding the task base, because we've all, uh, uh, the panel has spoken uh, quite extensively about the difficulty in uh, uh, increasing taxes and uh, the dwindling uh, aid inflow and all of the external pressures that have come. But, uh, and I would want him to speak uh, more closely about uh, the emerging trends we've seen, what support uh, uh, have countries received in uh, widening uh, their tax bases. And uh, more specifically, I'd also like to hear uh, maybe the entire panel's thought on, uh, panelists, uh, their, your, your thoughts on uh, the issue of uh, uh, tax expenditures, especially in Africa. Uh, a lot of uh, firms go into companies, multinational companies go into African countries and they get these generous tax incentives that, uh, 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 that prevents, uh, that takes away vital resources that should actually come to the central government in uh, uh, increasing its revenue inflows to, to, to do development. How, how do they see that and what support can they provide African countries? especially in the de uh, developing countries generally to deal with this issue. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I'm going to broaden that, that question slightly because I think one of the questions that the topics that has come up a lot is this idea of, you know, across the world, the need, need for a new fiscal contract, whether that's in advanced economies, you know, to convince populations to pay additional taxes, whether to sort of rethink the fiscal contract in uh, Liberia. And so there's several questions coming in online on that topic. Just one final, I suppose, challenge provocation as well to the um, the panel. You said, I think, you know, that there's been a general suggestion that the way almost to square this circle of, uh, you know, ever-growing demands on the public purse is uh, to raise more revenue. You know, that's that's kind of the solution that you've both put forward. I suppose my provocation would be, you know, many African countries on average, their tax to deep, GDP ratios look relatively healthy compared to, say, South Asia, countries like Bangladesh or Pakistan, Pakistan, India that have enjoyed quite high growth rates. Similarly, East Asia hasn't historically necessarily had enormously high tax to GDP ratios. A lot of central government policy has been focused more on productivity, you know, thinking about industrial policy and how to raise productivity to drive fiscal improvements through growth. Uh, and I just wonder if we're also seeing a lot of this in sort of uh, the US supply sideism at the moment. So this kind of return of the supply side and thinking about industrial policy. Do finance ministries have any role in that or are they just accountants and revenue collectors? 
Okay, bye. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or, or maybe let's 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 go in reverse this time. So Majito, if that's okay, if you do you want to start off with and then Mark and then Ibabi to finish this off. Thank you. Uh so, so actually, yeah, uh, some of the uh, ASEAN countries, uh, the East Asia, in Indonesia is included. Uh, the tax to GDP ratio is quite low compared to the emerging market in general. Uh, of course, uh, we are trying to, because we want to be an advanced economy uh, by our 100 uh, years independence, hopefully in 2045. And you know, to be able to achieve that, you, of course, need a certain base, right? Uh, the tax ratio, revenue mobilization that you need in order to be able to support that kind of growth. Especially uh, as growth uh, increase, uh, usually inequality also uh, widen. And then, you know, the social uh, transfers and social support in order to support the bottom 40% of the population is still uh, actually needed. So I think for countries has a, a different solution, uh, but definitely you need sort of like a balance between your external debt, uh, your own country um, uh, revenue, but also uh, Mark has pointed out as well, this pseudo uh, fiscal deficit where countries are putting off balance sheet some of the risk uh, of, of fiscal, including the SOE risk, for example, are usually off balance sheet is uh, also something that we need to be careful uh, of. So I think uh, it uh, it comes down to the uh, country-specific issues, but in general, you need a certain amount of, you know, tax-to-GDP ratio to be able to sustain uh, uh, your growth rate. Thank you, Majita. Mark? Um, <clears throat> yes, the issue of, uh, of corruption, I mean, this is such a, uh, a huge challenge and not, of course, only in Africa. And we all know it's uh, fundamentally about uh, politics and about the political culture, education levels, about the, uh, the level of media exposure of, uh, of corrupt activities, all of these sorts of things which are outside the domain of, of public financial management or fiscal policy. <laughs> So uh, I guess it's one of these areas we've got to be very modest about what we can expect to achieve just by changing technical systems. But, you know, having said that, um, it's clear that on many fronts, changing systems can actually help uh, significantly in this area. And I think about the sort of uh, reforms to procurement systems that um, the World Bank and uh, a number of other uh, multilateral organizations have uh, increasingly advocated over recent times with the use of uh, e-procurement with uh, transparency built into the bidding process. Uh, that uh, building of clear systems and associated transparency is something that does have real potential to reduce the scope for uh for uh corruption and the transparency po point of course applies in many other areas such as you know off balance sheet uh, debt and tax expenditures which you mentioned before because tax expenditures are of course a major channel for corruption so the the more they're made explicit and so on the more this helps um the uh reform of public investment management systems is enormously important as well you know, I'm struck once again by a country like uh, Rwanda, which 
I've got enormous admiration for, which has built uh, systems for project selection, which have a lot of best practice in them, where uh, all uh, projects are systematically looked at, including by ministerial committee with clear processes for analysis. You know, those sorts of processes and mechanisms, if they're followed, reduce greatly the scope for corruption in this area. And the problem is, of course, that they're not followed in very many countries around the world. Sort of underlines my point uh, before that, uh, you know, rather than saying everything we've been doing in the past in the PFM area is, uh, is flawed. In fact, you know, in so many of these areas, the things that have been emphasised in the past have enormous potential and so on. They just need to be applied more systematically. I'll leave it at Thank you, Mark. Thanks. Um, on corruption, I mean, I think I completely agree with Mark that transparency is by far the most important tool that we have, um, governments have, to uh, to try and uh, mitigate it as much as possible. It still baffles me, still baffles me to this day why the you know the winners of bids are, and the price, the unit price that they uh, won the bid at is not being displayed transparently when countries go out to procure roads, et cetera. I think often external lenders, including many multilateral development banks, et cetera, you know, also hide this information and just kills me. Yeah? Having benchmarks for like, how much does should a kilowatt, I mean, on average, how much are countries paying for a kilometer of tarmac road, et cetera. Getting these kind of benchmark information out there so that, you know, uh, public accounts committees of parliaments etc can hold government to account but also uh, you know people uh, the media can ask questions are you know some practical steps that can be taken i think to try and infuse uh, to try and promote better accountability uh, so but corruption i think by, that's by far the biggest thing uh, that we can do on tax um you know what it is that can be done to do domestic revenue mobilization first on where tax levels are in sub-saharan africa at least in the vast majority of countries i think you know there's well below what we consider to be potential huh? individual tax handles but also in aggregate i think the average tax ratio median i think is you know around 14 15 percent and you know that's just about the level you need to be providing the kind of goods and services that modern governments provide uh, but you know we need to be closer to 20 percent probably to have a more resilient uh, public finance structure so i think there's still a lot more to be done certainly given the aspirations for all countries to aspire to be middle income etc and i think that's uh, you know most asian countries are at that level if not much markedly higher so I think first kind of this there's there's a need in the vast majority of countries to to move closer to 15 even 20 percent of gdp uh, how do we get there again i think you know the point i made earlier that there is no silver bullet it's going to be gradual work um, but you know things like avoiding uh, uh, self-harm the tax expenditure issue you know, countries are legion for providing these, but there's also some technical things that can be done. I mean, you know, uh, legislation really updating it so that you minimize transfer pricing uh, through thin capitalization, you know, practices, etc. I mean, there's, so there's a whole host of technical things that can be done to make sure that the tax system is robust. But I think the, by far the bigger challenge, honestly, is political. In the vast majority of countries, it is political. It is readiness to go out and explain uh, what the money is going to be used for, be unpopular, 
you know, for the reason. So it is, I think, political, you know, process of trying to strengthen the social contract. Um, and this, of course, is something that takes time. I know you're patient, but just two quick points I wanted to make. One is, uh, you know, uh, in no small part, I think, I, one, of, one of the reasons why we keep having these conferences and these conversations also are impatience, okay? You know, the process of, uh, you know, this development transition, I think is a very, very gradual process and one which really requires state capacity to develop over time. Huh? And I find kind of we're often very impatient. We want over three, four, five years, uh, something that took decades, most advanced countries, to be done by countries with very very weak capacity and so i think being patient that this is going to be a long-term issue is going to be really important and then the last one of course is goes i mean as uh, as uh, uh was talking earlier i'm reminded of just how important economic growth is okay? so i think the asian countries are on a on a great uh, as arvin subramanian puts it you know on a on a nice cycle where growth is begetting more growth and it's you know getting back onto that growth wagon uh, that's going to actually also provide a lot of resources to address uh, fiscal challenges. Great. If you can help us in the UK with that growth wagon as well, <laughs> we'd really like to find that one. Uh, <laughs> okay. Let, thanks so much to our panelists for this excellent first session. Um, I, I, just a couple of sort of like uh, final thoughts before I free you for your coffee. I mean, first of all, so one of the things that came out clearly is that you know we've always had to pity the finance ministry, but perhaps at the moment is a particular sort of moment of pity. And I, I think one of the reasons for this is there is you know as Abebe put it, the need you know, particularly development is a long term process. Yeah, at the same time, there's some very real pressures that can't potentially be avoided around demography, around impending climate, and how those things are balanced is a real, real challenge. And it's a challenge both for the international system, exogenous system, if you want to, you know, the in, about how they can facilitate that, but also for governments and the sort of institutional changes, conditions that might be required to, to navigate that. So we're going to be talking about that for a couple more days. In the meantime, please, please go and talk to each other. Enjoy your coffee. Enjoy seeing old friends again. Tom, what time do we need to be back? Can, 20, can we, half past. Okay, half past. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, everyone.